0: Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the MEM podcast. My name is Demi Wright and today I have Dr. Darren Reed, who is a respiratory registrar in the East Midlands. So today we're going to talk about asthma and as asthma is a very large topic, today we're just going to focus on the acute setting and the approach and management of a patient in the resource setting. So Darren, let's begin. Can you tell us a bit about asthma and what your general approach is to the management in this setting?
1: So asthma is a fairly prevalent condition, and we're all familiar with it, sort of airway bronchospasm and the typical sort of features of being harder to control overnight, exercise induced worsening alongside other triggers. Things we often do see is changes in weather, particularly in the spring and summer months, seeing sort of the tree pollens and the grass pollens affecting people with allergic rhinitis and also airway bronchospasm, airway sensitivity. It's also related to other things less commonly, things like thunderstorm asthma. It's been a recent problem. And then obviously infections, compliance with medication, they all can impact on why patients present. So particularly in the setting of coming into hospital, that represents someone with asthma having either poor control or just something's gone horribly wrong, because ideally all these patients would be kept out of hospital. But the first point I would make is that all patients coming into hospital should be stratified as to severity of their presenting asthma exacerbation. And we use the BTS guidelines for this, which divides them into moderate asthma, acute severe asthma, life-threatening asthma, and near-fatal asthma anything sort of mild should hopefully be bounced away in ED after initial treatment by the ED team.
0: Okay and if we do a breakdown of that assessment what's your initial thing when you go to recess and you see a patient that's been referred with acute severe asthma what do you do at that
1: point? First of I'm sort of clarifying is it actually acute severe asthma and that's basically based upon the diagnostic criteria so you're looking for impaired peak flows, significant tachycardia, and objectively being breathless or not able to speak in sentences, that sort of thing. But at the point of identifying that, you're wanting to initiate treatment. You don't necessarily need to be sort of putting people into these categories to start treatment, but it's useful to have an idea of how bad they were at the point of presentation. So then if they do improve, you can sort of see how they're going. So the mainstay of treatment in the sort of first half an hour to an hour is nebulized bronchodilators and getting your steroids and your oxygen on if needed. Some bronchodilators, 2.5 milligrams of salbutamol nebulized and 500 micrograms of ipotropium, sort of the opening treatment. I see a lot of people being prescribed five milligrams. I'm not sure there's necessarily an evidence base there, but certainly will push someone's lactate up for symptoms, tachycardia and tremors. And particularly if there is an overlap of this being asthma, as well as a lot of patients have psychological components to their breathing difficulties also. And if you're worsening anxiety with the bronchodilators, that can further worsen panic. Okay.
0: And would you say that 5 milligrams has a better or a higher therapeutic effect than the 2.5? No,
1: uh, I'm not convinced there is a difference. I think it's more, if you're given the 2.5, you then give it time to work, because this isn't an instantaneous drug. It will continue to build up over the next like, 20 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, you could consider giving further bronchodilators if required, but continuously having a nebulizer on their face isn't necessarily going to be treating the patients, so which is treating the doctor.
0: Okay, that's a really good point to note, actually. So these nebulizers, in particular salbutamol, give it time. So ideally, at least fifteen minutes between cycles. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you mentioned steroids. Um, yes. What is the dose and what's the route? And um, is there any difference?
1: So in asthma, um, forty milligrams of oral prednisolone is quite a standard approach. We use the forty milligrams in asthma is often we use 30 milligrams in things like COPD, which there are a lot of similarities in treatment. The rationale being asthma is predominantly a xenophilic inflammation, which is going to be more sensitive to corticosteroids. The only real reason to give steroids IV is if they're unable to take it by oral route. So, if someone is so breathless they refuse to even take a tablet because they can't stop their breathing to swallow, then you might be given hydrocortisone sort of 200 milligrams IV as a stat dose. And then at the point they are a bit more settled, you might then start the But points to make are that prednisolone and hydrocortisone are both going to take several hours to start having an effect. It's not instantaneous. And also the prednisolone has a longer duration of action and therefore is preferable to the hydrocortisone where you might need multiple doses in a 24-hour period.
0: Okay. And one of the things that I've noticed that's quite frequent to be seen when a patient's coming to Rhesus is people immediately do the nebulizers, and that's fine. But also, I've noticed that a lot of people have quite quickly drawn for the magnesium. What is the actual rule for magnesium in asthmatic patients?
1: So the difficulty here is that we've got conflicting stances. So magnesium is in the BTS guidelines to give between 1.2 grams and 2 grams over 20 minutes, and the ID- is to stabilize smooth muscle. There's very little harm with it, so I think it's quite readily reached for because it again makes you feel like you're doing something and is one more tick that you have done in sort of initiating treatment to remove barriers that other people will say, look well, at that. I'm not aware of a particularly good evidence base for that, and um, some trusts refuse to use it on that basis. But given that it's in the BTS guidelines, it's something I do tend to prescribe, although I don't necessarily put a lot of faith in the effect.
0: Okay. And what about IV salbutamol and IV aminopoli? Is there a rule? And are we the ones that should be using it?
1: So IV salbutamol is something that I've never prescribed and it's certainly something I don't see the role of. With IV aminophilin, that is something that I use. There is an outdated and very small evidence base for it, but it's a classic drug that is brought up in every pharmacological exam where the toxicity and the therapeutic effect are so close that the therapeutic window is very narrow. It requires fairly rigorous monitoring of therapeutic levels because either you're going to be too low and it's going to be doing nothing, or you're going to push them into toxicity and tachycardia or potentially making them worse in that respect. It's a tricky drug if you've not used it before, but essentially it's broken down into two parts. So the initial loading. So if someone isn't normally on oral theophilin, you would load them based upon weight and whether they're a smoker. So after that initial bolus, you would then be starting a constant infusion, which is, again, weight-based, whether you're a smoker because that affects metabolism, and then you're checking levels intermittently. If you've loaded, it's fairly soon after starting the infusion you'll be checking. If you haven't loaded, then it's about 16 hours on. But you're needing to get those because you're then going to be adjusting the rate of infusion to keep them in that therapeutic window. Anecdotally, people tell me that it's a very effective drug counter-argument to that is always, is that not just the delayed effect of the steroids and the graftilectimus, and it's very tricky to know.
0: Okay, so routinely would you use it in someone who hasn't then responded to your initial management?
1: I would. Because if they're failing to respond to initial treatment, if they're then heading towards intensive care, trying to ventilate invasively a patient with severe bronchospasm is very difficult, and they end up having very high pressures to ventilate, which can cause barotrauma to the patient. So anything you can do to try to break the bronchospasm is obviously sought after, even if it's not particularly efficacious.
0: Okay. So you mentioned ITU there. Yes. When would you get ITU involved for an asthmatic patient that comes in?
1: So anyone that is near fatal, that's just straight away a call to ITU. That's basically, if they're already a that is a very late stage in the asthma presentation and has a very high risk of them dying if nothing is done. It's effectively showing that rather than being hypocapnic or normocapnic, they fatigue to the point that they're no longer able to ventilate adequately and then rapidly progress through a respiratory acidosis so it should be called at that point of identifying them but also anytime you see someone that is not responding to treatment particularly if they're in a the life-threatening category if you're seeing them deteriorate despite treatment I've got a few cases that are in my mind of how quickly that can happen. I, I remember having sat with an ITU reg watching a patient that was normal catnip and just talking about how this is going to progress and then they just in front of us became floppy and just sagged to the bed. Clearly over you know the space of a minute or two, they've gone from ventilating, working very hard to just being so tired that they just collapsed.
0: Oh, wow. That's definitely something that's frightening for anyone to see. In that setting, or in any other setting, when or should you use NIV for the management of acute asthma?
1: So, ITU can, but it should never be done in a medical or emergency setting. It should be done on ITU at their discretion as a bridge or potential stopgap before invasive ventilation. The rationale for not providing NIV on a ward is that if you do that, you're going to delay intubation. They might initially improve, but at the point where they stop improvement or deteriorate, you want to have the option of intubation within minutes, and that won't be possible on medical ward. So essentially a broad statement is never do it. And if they're hypercatenic respiratory acidosis, they should be in RTU. Okay.
0: When you have patients that come in Do you do an abg on all asthmatic patients
1: i think that falls back into where are they in terms of severity so if they're a moderate asthmatic gaspation where their peak flow is actually still quite good they're maintaining their own oxygen saturations on air i'm not necessarily sure there's going to be a change in management certainly anyone that's becoming hypoxic i do if i'm concerned clinically i do because then you're starting to wade into are there any features of life-threatening asthma, and that by definition will require a blood gas. Yes. So I don't think you need it in all patients, but I have a low threshold if the patient is looking unwell.
0: Okay, all right. And just to wrap up a bit, you've done everything. You've given the patient regular nebulizers. You've given them magnesium and albuterol, and they've improved. Quite a lot, so they're on the ward. When do you consider them for discharge?
1: So you will need to step back on the medical intervention. So if they're on a infusion, you'll want to wean that and get them off it. The magnesium will have already been stopped; it's only a bolus. You would want to have stopped nebulizers for twenty-four hours and have established them at a peak flow of seventy-five percent or greater of their predicted or their best previous before you're discharging. If you're trying to discharge them too rapidly, they might still have some neutralised bronchilator on board that will falsely reassure you that they're well, they'll go home and get worse and come back or die. So we shouldn't rush these discharges. Okay.
0: And what about the steroids? Do we stop them on the day of discharge or should they have a longer course?
1: So for a first course, a five day course should be sufficient. But you have to factor in previous events. So if they've been in pri- sort of managed in primary care and have had a couple of courses of steroids preceding admission, then actually you don't want necessarily to stop them cold turkey, particularly if they've gone on for sort of two weeks or longer. You might gradually wean that. And a typical weaning regime would be about five milligrams every three days with the goal of stopping.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Reid. That's been My extremely pleasure. helpful. See you next time.